Finnish, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. Survived another couple of weeks? I mean, I didn't do any uh, radical stunts on the moons of Mars, so yes, it was pretty easy to survive. Well, that's always encouraging to know. So this week, we are going to be diving back into the world of the Eighth Doctor and Lucy Miller as we proceed with their first season. That means this week, we are going to be covering Phobos and No More Lies. So, um, Kev, do you want to give us a summary for Phobos, please? Sure. On Phobos, uh, Doctor and Lucy arrive on the titular moon, and there they find it's become a sort of radical sports uh, haven, but one that is... uh, menaced by possibly the mysterious phobians. Uh, These phobians are a rumor spread by owner of the sort of Phobos dome place named Kai, and he and his partner Eris run it, where we also meet Drew and Hayde, two thrill seekers, and Amy and Farl, a sort of illegitimate alien couple trying to hide out. Uh, The phobians wind up being Kai's invention as he tries to scare people away because... At the, at the center of Phobos is a monster that feeds on fear and adrenaline, but only pure fear can destroy it. And so the doctor does his very usual doctor thing and filling the, the creature with too much pure fear, destroying it, not after a bunch of people have died, unfortunately. But with that resolved, the doctor and Lucy head off again. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So um, normally I would ask you, you know, what do you think of this? And that would be our, our, our lead off into our discussion. But instead of asking, what do you think of this? I'm going to ask you, what was the point of this? Um, I think the point was there are eight stories they had to make for the season. <laughs> they had seven pretty well locked down, especially thanks to two of them being two parters. But then they just like, oh, what, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a... I, I, there's such a nothing story. I, I I feel this may be a lopsided episode because um, mm. I think there's probably more to discuss when it comes to No More Lies. But, uh, I mean, as far as Phobos is concerned, I just... This is just... Like, if you had to, like, pick a, like, a mean... A, a, by which I mean average uh, story um, that just is Doctor Who by numbers, it, you couldn't pick a better choice. This... You know, the monsters are just monsters. The people on the moon are just people on a moon. The the totally radical man sports dudes with their, um, oh, so painfully outdated language are just that. There's no depth to any of this. It's so completely surface. And it's just, it's just like um, eight or ten people reading stuff out, which I know is what any script is, but, you know, you know, that's that's just all this is. It's just a bunch of people reading stuff out loud. Yeah, so here's a very great anecdote from Eddie Robson, the writer's website. Well, writer is in heavy air quotes, as you'll find out. He describes Phobos as a speedy rewrite job of someone else's script, which I ended up getting sole credit for, and which ended up being my first broadcast credit. I'd have much rather it been Human Resources, which is better and more representative of my work, but that's life. It's got Timothy West and Naris Hughes in it. And I think there's no better review out there than from the author himself. Well, again, author and co-author, let's say. Because, yeah, no word on whose script this originally was, but sounds like he was in a bit of a bind. And I can't imagine what the original script would have been if this is the improved version. Yeah, it must have been <laughs> it must have been pretty pretty unspectacular if this is the best version that we could have hoped for. And you know, like he's gonna go on and write a ton of stuff for Big Finish. You know, Eddie Robson's mm-hmm. a lot of um a lot of material to his name now. Um, and, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. And it's not a complete catastrophe. It's not It's not the worst <laughs> first story somebody has written for, for Big Finish. But it's just... It's just so inconsequential. Um, you know, a monster that lives on fear. Yeah, that's, that's not unique. And um, a faintly futuristic setting in no specific time zone. That's not unique. And... It just like everything about it is just kind of running off um, a list of things that, that that we've seen before. There's just there's no I, I, saying there's no substance there. That's that's kind of almost an insult to stories with no substance. It's just mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't know. I can't think of a better word than inconsequential. Yeah, and I think what really seems is there's an attempt at substance. I think I think there's like characters here that he definitely has. 70% fleshed out to be something interesting. But there's 
part of it is there's too many. And part of it is just, there's just not, they just wind up falling into these very stock types because it's just crypto trying to get through all of this exposition and all of these sort of incidences. Yeah, it doesn't really take time to slow down and really focus on these characters. So I think things like, I think the twist around Kai is nominally interesting, but without really getting a good sense of his motivations and why to be driven to murder, even though, the, I granted, you get the sort of greater good motivation, but you don't really feel it for the character. I think that is, like, symptomatic of a lot of problems with these characters. Yeah, I think they are all very flat, and motivations tend to be, at, at best, kind of very surface level. And I think that kind of extends to the Doctor and, and Lucy as well, and that's mm-hmm. really kind of the fatal flaw here the doc if the doctor and lucy have something interesting going on with them then you can kind of forgive it if a lot of the other characters fade a bit into the background i mean there's there's plenty of stories that's that's true on but the doctor just turns up and solves a problem because that's what the doctor does he turns up and solves problems and gray and you know lucy is kind of plucky in the face of danger and that's fine and as usual, I'm not really criticizing Paul McGann or Sheridan Smith, but the Doctor and Lucy just don't have anything going on. And so if they're just going to be kind of sort of fairly generic examples of their characters, then you need the other ones to, to come alive. And like, like that, that thing that Eddie Robson says about the fact that he's got, you know, he's got Neris Hughes in his cast. Like, yeah, okay, we we know Neris Hughes can turn in good Doctor Who work because we've seen Kinda. You know, she's great in Kinda. Fantastic. Um, and yet somehow that doesn't really translate into anything. Timothy West is a fantastically talented actor. Um, and again, he's just kind of standing there reading his lines. And um, you, that sounds like... That's, Sounds like such a harsh criticism for such a talented person, but that's I don't know how else to say it. He just stands there and says his lines. You can you I couldn't imagine him going up to the writer or director and going, So so what's my motivation in this? Where do where does my character there isn't any. Uh, you know, uh, uh Tobias just sort of does stuff and that's true of everyone here. Nobody is really motivated by anything. Characters just do stuff. Yeah, that's a good description. Characters just do stuff. And there's like this weird attempt to sort of retroactively say it's the fear monster at the end of the story though i can't it was sort of dismissed as well that was left very ambiguous and basically i was like oh the fear monster made us do these things oh no it wouldn't make you do these things so like so what is it and (laughs) why bring that up and with you're not going to button it with well humans are the real monsters or at least something it was just a lot of things just sort of dropped there and yeah you don't again it's just not you don't really feel sympathy for a lot of these characters, unfortunately. You just, none of them are very endearing or interesting. And it's a very fatal flaw for a story that is kind of all about this. Like, I mean, I think we've talked about how the best Doctor Who stories really get you involved with the non-Doctor and companion characters because it really builds out this whole world in this short time span you have this story with. And this, when the story fails on that, it's very hard to salvage it. Yeah, and it's just going to be one of those things where I just feel like I'm repeating myself constantly. But yeah, like very hard to salvage it. That's that's it. Um, we should mention that um, Paul McGann's son is in this, Jake McGann. Yeah. It doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't mean anything. There's no connection. And he, like everybody else, he's sufficient. Um, neither great nor terrible. He, he, he certainly doesn't stumble over his lines. And But it's like, yeah... And um, it's just, it's, it's, he's there. Um, and I wish that that wasn't the case. I would, I would love there to be, like, if you're going to have, maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong when I'm saying this. But if you're going to have somebody who's like a, like a familial member um, of the cast be in it, when, especially if you get someone like Paul McGann, who's kind of, like, even, obviously all of his stories haven't been great, but he's almost universally admired as the Doctor, even that was true just from the TV movie. You know, most people thought he was the best thing about it, understandably so. Um, you know, there was a lot of competition. And so if you were going to rope in another member of his family, obviously the McGann family have a long kind of acting tradition. It feels like you should maybe do that in a story which can take advantage of that um, familial relationship or, or something which is going to... Um, inspire it you know or, or find a way to do something with it whereas 
Jake McGann is simply in this. And that's not his fault. I'm not pointing the finger at him. Of course I'm not. But it's just, it, it, there's no, it could be anyone. Um, and that's not a qu- comment on the quality of his, his performance, but there's no particular, there's no feel for that. And I can't help but feel that if there was a stronger connection there, maybe that might have helped to eke something out of the story or give it some kind of greater emotional depth or some kind of connective tissue between some of the characters but that, that never comes to anything and so it feels like another kind of wasted opportunity here yeah i it definitely feels like like you said wasted it's just just not much to this story that feels like it's fully used and i yeah i just really don't know like we could go subplot by subplot but it's it's almost hard to find the motivation <laughs> <laughs> is there also do you, do you feel the motivation to do that <laughs> yeah i think the one thing i'll say that stands out most of all is uh there's the there is the sort of characters of farl and amy who are this couple who are like sort of on the run because their love is forbidden seen a thousand times uh like and the story seems to go out of its way to make farl so unsympathetic <laughs> and just not a pleasant person and it's like and at the same time we're supposed to be the lesson is supposed to be, oh, look at how terrible like these people are judging him and being afraid of him, and he's afraid of them and lashing out and sort of feeding this creature. But again, it's missing that button that sort of fully explains that. And also, it's just like, why does she like him? He's a very unpleasant guy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, fine, if you want to do an opposites attract thing, that's okay. But it's just such a kind of beauty in the beast cliche, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just like, I, I don't know. It's, it's again, I think I think uh, what you said earlier about the fact there's sort of a, like a surface suggestion of something there in terms of having a greater depth. I think you could kind of um, apply that to their relationship. Um because you have the idea that just because um, somebody is persecuted or because somebody has been told that their love is forbidden or whatever, it doesn't automatically make somebody a sympathetic character. It doesn't automatically <laughs> make somebody, you know, worthwhile or, or, or worthy of redemption or, or whatever it is the story is going to go for. Um but at the same time, this story clearly really wants us to buy into this relationship. It wants us to care about the way that the, this 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 mismatched couple are, are being persecuted. And um, it never really feels like it manages to add up to sort of, you know, if it was going to be a comment on, on, on gay relationships or trans relationships or just generally relationships, like even mixed race, since that's literally what they are. Um, you know, it, it, but it, 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 there's no punch to land there. Um, and so what we're left with is this weirdly lopsided relationship where one character is actively being promoted as being unpleasant without any kind of like exploration of whether it was his experiences which have driven him to be that unpleasant or whether it's uh, just him and, and he's a bad person, but, you know, they're in this weird sort of power dynamic relationship or whatever there's 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 plenty in that i think that you could dig into what is so conspicuous about that relationship is that none of it is yeah i think that is like such a good call like there's so it's just missing so much and that like you said it is a great idea of a story is uh someone persecuted but also maybe is a difficult and complex character but that you, you can't do that when you they have like 10 total minutes of screen time in a one hour long story that has to do so much else. It's just not going to work out. Like there's just, it's stretching itself too thin basically with all of these stories it's doing. It, it, this can't be the C plot. It has to be a much bigger thing. And instead what you're left with when you have to simplify it so much is forbidden love. But I don't care about the forbidden love if he's acting like a jerk. Like you really... <laughs> really have to simplify things to get me to work within this hour-long bounds. Yeah, if if you're going to have something like that, it needs to be kind of the core of the of the story. And you know, honestly, I think it wouldn't take that much for it to be the core of the story either because the whole here's a monster that lives on fear and then there's like a mysterious wormhole at the middle of the planet. I mean, it's just so Doctor Who by numbers that it doesn't require you can cover that story in like five minutes flat. It doesn't require an hour 
of our time to investigate a story like that. There are thousands of Doctor Who stories, there are thousands of big finish stories, never mind sort of going into novels and TV show and all the rest of it, which cover that kind of ground. So there's plenty of space within this for that key relationship really to, to sort of occupy the centre ground of this uh, of this story. And it doesn't. And that's just, that's, you, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a story that, that can't see the wood for the trees. There's all these interesting options that could be there. And it, as, as always, I don't want to rewrite a story on behalf of someone else. And like that quote that you had earlier clearly shows that this was a, you know, a difficult um, story to get going. And it, it obviously didn't go according to plan and blah, blah, blah. But I'm always very inclined to sort of, I just want to really kind of talk about or review what it is we have in front of us rather than the sort of the peripheral details and what we have in front of us just isn't good enough um and and it could be and that so that's all it's just impossible for that not to lead to to those kind of frustrations and that yeah that relationship is kind of pretty much the perfect example of it yeah and then when you have i mean you have people starting to die you have uh the person in the cold open you have a another oh, yeah. that was another character in this that was a character there was another <laughs> so i think there was someone I listened to this yesterday, and I'm like, there was someone else who died, right? Before Hade was knocked in a coma. Uh, and yeah. I, I, yeah, it's someone else, and not even just like a generic person, someone else with lines. But it's like, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> so, And that's sort of the problem. And then you have the heiress's death at the end, and it just doesn't hit, because who are these characters? Why should I care is the running thing we're saying. The one further note I have is I think it's nice that for 2007, we had a suggestion of a gay couple, <laughs> and I mean that was a little sweet. Like during hate, it's like very stereotypical, especially of the time. It's like, oh, it's all suggestion, and it's not really much resolution. But I mean, at least there wasn't any demonization going on. And for 13 years ago, I don't know. I'll throw Eddie Robson the bone, but fair enough. Yeah, we definitely want to expect. We definitely expect better now, and it's just a very cold comfort in a very drab story. See, make that one the central relationship as well yeah. if you want, because it's kind of it's kind of tossed off. If, uh, maybe that's not the ideal choice of words, but it's kind of tossed off in in that it's there. So, like, not only do you have like the the relationship with Farrell, um, which can be kind of like a stand-in for that kind of relationship, we have the actual relationship there, and still nothing happens with it. Ah, yeah, and. That's the most articulate way I have to end my my thoughts of this story. Are yeah, it's it's a like it's can't even be a disappointment because like how what were you expecting besides <laughs> good Doctor Who and not getting that? Um, I, I one more thought that came to mind. Uh, you were talking about how the Doctor and Lucy seem at sore at odds. It is worth noting that this is the first produced story after Blood of the Daleks because the weird double production order of this whole range and obviously it was written in the correct order because there's reference to immortal beloved though maybe rewritten who knows but yeah i mean you can definitely still feel a sheridan smith settling into the role in this story which makes a choice to record out of order maybe it was a availability thing who knows but it does make it a little odd yeah no that's 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 fair enough that's 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 a worthwhile observation for all that i don't tend to sort of fall back and sort of production details or whatever you're you're sort of quite right to point that out that doesn't make a big difference um and mm -hmm. if it's the first time that uh Paul McGann and, and Sheridan Smith have really worked together then it's obviously going to be you know that kind of breaking in of the relationship but I also think that's like again I don't know if it's scheduling conflict or whatever but I also think that is kind of the the problem of doing out sequence recording because that sort of that slight awkwardness that they have here together um I think could have really benefited Blood of the Daleks because they're they're mm -hmm. obviously they're at odds with each other and sort of growing together, and that might that sort of genuine sense that both the actors and and the characters are playing are doing that might have helped to, you know, lend a little bit more verisimilitude to that story. Um, as it is, okay, that didn't happen, but uh, yeah, it's at least an interesting point to note. On that note, why don't we move <laughs> on to No More Lies? And I think by on that note, that means I'm tossing to myself to summarize No More Lies. So it starts with the Doctor and Lucy chasing the villainous Nick Zimmerman for doing something with time. And they chase him. He escapes, but they manage to catch up to him 30 years in his future, where he has been hosting a garden party with his wife, Rachel, 
who, as we learned at the end of the story, is dying, which is why he has set up a time loop to sort of keep him and her in a bliss eternal. Unfortunately, that time loop is crashed by the Tarmodox, who are riding Vortazors and trying to feed off the time disturbing en disturbance energy. And so the Doctor has to close the time loop and finally let Nick and Rachel go on with their lives. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Well, I think it's probably safe to say that this is immediately a sort of stronger story than uh, Phobos. Now, again, not a high bar to clear. That doesn't mean that this is, um, I would say, a, a perfect production, but I do think it is, it is noticeably stronger. And I think one of the reasons for that is that I think it's going to much better handle on the kind of genre that it wants to exist in. Um, by that, I mean, Phobos was just any Doctor Who story, just like any grab bag, pick and mix, whatever. This is kind of clearly settled on the idea of the of the, the central romance. Um, and that's going to be the focus. So even although we have, you know, like like Nick is, is a you know deeply unpleasant character and he's selfish and he's self-obsessed and the only thing that really matters to him is, is what he wants, he actually has proper motivation and his motivation here is, is, is love. And that's fine. It's not, it's not exactly revelatory, but there's a clear through line, I think, through this play um, that it understands the elements of the characters it wants to focus on. And that makes a big, big difference. Now, it all goes um, very much off tracks as we sort of get towards the end and swirls of, of, of Vortisaurs and, and, and uh, just a whole mess of stuff happening. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But, but just the fact that it's got this sort of relatively central concept and it wants to play around with the characters and, and, and how they react it just provides them with a motivation that was so sorely lacking in the last story. Oh, absolutely. These are actual characters. I think it's helped by the fact that there are two of them. I mean, you have yes. Flash Gordon, <laughs> uh, and he's, he's mildly interesting. But yeah, there's no pathos sort of wrung out of him. He's just sort of bouncing around and being a sort of sounding board for the Doctor. You have... It's mostly about Zimmerman and Rachel and uh, this sort of idea of what if this stereotypical Doctor Who villain could reform and have, like, this sort of nice life. And I think a little of the wind is taken out by the fact that we have no connection to this person. The In Me Res opening is just, it's very sudden and, like, you get where they're going for it. It's only an hour, of course. But, uh, yeah, it is just like, who, are, who is this person? Why should I care? And was it then so unforgivable that the doctor can't quite buy that he's redeemed? But yeah, I think it is the idea is too good. Like what this is what the story has that the other one doesn't. Ambition. Interesting ideas. Like <laughs> an actual thought behind it. And so yeah, I think it's a great little love story. I think all the character beats are really well thought through. I think it's a and though, yeah, like I say, once once the aliens show up, it all just sort of goes the hell in a handbasket and just sort of goes an autopilot from there. But I think there's still that core of a good story and good character work that really brings this home. Yeah, I'm not really sure the Tarmadux really add anything to this story. I, I think if it was just the, the, the possibility that um, mm. that Nick has basically created this time loop in error and that he made some mistake is, is sort of raised a few times during this story. Um, a couple of times by Lucy, and the Doctor keeps dismissing it as, oh, no, he's, he's too clever for that. He'd never make that kind of mistake. But I think it kind of might have been better if he just had made that mistake um, and he or, there, or he'd been trying to do something that would help to extend, you know, this relationship. And it wouldn't alter the core, but it would get rid of all that wasted time with the Tarmadux and the, uh, the, and the Vortisaurs and whatever. I never expected the Vortisaurs to make much of a comeback, I must stay. Um, so that's... Uh, <laughs> not that anybody was craving their return or anything, but that was unexpected. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think the Tarmadux really add anything. But yeah, you're right. There's an ambition to that central relationship there. Um, and the fact that we've got a couple of real class acts in the in the casting department as well makes a big difference. And Nigel Havers is just perfect at playing that kind of um, very kind of upper crust, upper class kind of person who who sort of can do that full civility thing incredibly well. But 
on a dime can just turn out mm. to be an absolute evil piece of you know nothing um and he's so good at being able to do that he, he's he's uh you know a past master at it he's got decades of television experience playing exactly those kind of characters julia mckenzie is the same she's great at being able to play these kind of gentle characters that it it becomes easy to invest in the character even if the writing isn't always 100 percent. and i think the writing for, for rachel is fine uh, but even if the writing isn't 100 percent, she makes she's one of those actors that because she's so likable she has a kind of naturalness about her you just can't help but warm to the characters that she plays um so when we find out you know her fate we find out what's going on with her she just automatically becomes more sympathetic because of the mm -hmm. person that's playing her so there's a couple of really good pieces of casting there that also help to anchor this much much more solidly than the last story yeah and not just the casting but also just moments like it's very nice, quiet moment where you have Rachel singing that beautiful song in Czech. Yeah. And like that, it does nothing to advance the story. It's everything to advance uh, how attached we get to these characters. And I mean, it's it's so vital just for letting us sit with them and have like this sort of sympathy and respect for them that makes the eventual sacrifices sting a little more, which is something that Phobos like completely shied away from. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with this story is that there are actual consequences. So when the time loop is broken, um, it's not just some abstract bit of a baffle gab that, oh, the Doctor has managed to break this time loop and everybody can go back. You know, there's real world consequences. This person that was otherwise being kept alive is, is now going to die. Um, and there's, you know, there's a... Admittedly, it's relatively light, but there is also a discussion about whether it's more important to have that one person forever, but never allow them to advance, or to have them for a shorter period of time, but allow them to be kind of true to the person that they are. I mean, that's just light years away. Sorry, that's not, again, not the ideal expression, but that's just light years away from anything that Phobos had to discuss. And you know, there's there's that's like a proper moral discussion that can go in there. Would you? you know extend somebody's life indefinitely even if it meant that they don't have kind of any quality of life and i mean you can argue about Ra whether rachel does have quality of life here she's she's clearly yeah she she can sing she has her her friends she's the party etc etc but but it's kind of it's always the same day it's not really a life in the proper sense of the word mm -hmm. um and so you know again it's it's sort of lightly touched on it it's not heavy-handed it's not even kind of quite the center of the episode but there are you know there are proper things that you can debate and discuss about this story and that's one of the key ones i think speaking about the only always the same day and i think that might be a sort of almost weakness of the story is we don't really see the time loop loop it's very much the abstract thing yeah and again true. there was this time that we're dealing with this i mean time is in the hour-long running time that we're dealing with here there's a lot going on, but yeah, it just seems like a lot of time to abstract. I mean, we're also, it would be very melodramatic and silly for the time of Anna Rachel to suddenly cough over, keel over, and die. But <laughs> again, the illness is also a very abstract thing. And I don't know, it feels weird giving critiques that I can't think of solutions for. But at the same time, it, that's just sort of the matter of fact it is. It is sort of a bit of a barrier how abstract all these concepts are and how a lot of it is just sort of talking through them yeah that's 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 true and that that abstraction is is a, a bit of a weakness when i when i said before um that that you know it touches lightly on on these kind of things I, what i meant is that they are present but they're definitely not you know something which is is emphasized and i think the story would be stronger for you know investing more time in that sort of discussion and that kind of uh sort of way of exploring the characters through uh what it is they're experiencing i, I also agree with what you say about the time loop just in sort of a, a purely sci-fi doctor who kind of level you know we have the timeline introduced but we don't have the traditional kind of repetition we don't have that that sense of it so we're it, it, it's one of the few examples that we have here where it's kind of tell don't show we're told that these people are in a time loop but we don't really have any practical experience of that being the case um again it's only an hour long i understand there is there's there's sort of a limited amount that you can do and you don't necessarily want to waste your running time with repetition 
But at the same time, you know, you made it a time loop, so that's up to, that's your fault for for uh, mm-hmm. for not finding a solution to that. But at the same time, you know, I I, I I think one of the things I like about this story is that the the sci-fi element is relatively de-emphasized. I, I'm not a big fan of the in media res open. I'm not generally speaking a big fan of in media res openings anyway, because I think it's it's kind of often used as a, a, a lazy shortcut. It can be done well, but it mostly isn't. It's, it's mostly lazy shorthand. Um, and I think that's slightly the case here. What's weird about it is, is I think it's lazy shorthand, which also then go, goes on too long. I think we spend too much time with it. I think it's like five or six minutes in, at the opening of the play before we actually kind of get into the, the time loop itself and arrive at our, our central location. That's time I think that could have been could have been better spent. Yeah, I don't know what to say besides I completely agree. It's yeah, it it's just feels like I feel like you could have had the Doctor and Lucy land and say looking for an evil Doctor Zimmerman, just because that would almost feel less disorienting than that sort of action sequence to get at the beginning. Yeah, and or maybe even have Lucy not know who he is and just have the Doctor recognize him. Yeah, I think even I don't that, know, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I think that would have been fine. It's just I don't know. It just it feels a bit clumsy, um, yeah. and and that clumsiness is is just a, a little bit unfortunate. I think a lot of the the mistakes that this play makes when it makes them do tend to kind of come down to that sort of slight clumsiness. And um, you know, Paul Sutton has written for uh, Big Finish not that often, but he's turned in a couple of cracking stories you know thicker than water and arrangements for war um you know there's 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 good stuff in there that that doesn't normally suggest somebody that would be that clumsy so it's it's a bit weird to have an author who can turn out you know stories of that quality make that kind of mistake maybe it's maybe it's because this is a much more truncated runtime not everybody can write to that kind of 45 minutes to an hour format whereas you know i think arrangements for war is well over two hours if i remember correctly so you know there's there is that aspect to it as well but you know i don't know it's just i just wish that the ending didn't fall apart so spectacularly (laughs) because by the time we get to the vortisaurs sort of writing being ridden, you know, in a saddle and all the rest of it, it just all feels a bit unnecessary. And uh, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about Tom Chadburn yet, and I love Tom Chadburn. He's a real kind of cult TV survivor. Obviously, he's been in Doctor Who twice. He's in City of Death and Trial of the Time Lord. He's a, a Blake Seven stalwart. Uh, he's such a great actor, and I, I just always love listening to anything that he has to do. Um, but by the end of it, when he's, you know, trying to sort of explain what's going on with, uh, you know, riding the Vortisaurs and, and, and uh, they're not pterodactyls and all this kind of stuff. It's all just like, you can kind of even he seems to be rolling his eyes slightly at his delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, one thing I do want to bring up is I think the Doctor and Lucy have such a good relationship in this story. I think one thing we sort of lighted over on Phobos is that it's. In Phobos, they're very mean to each other, and it's <laughs> a lot like the Blood of the Dollar relationship, where it's just a lot, like, not a lot of respect between them. Whereas this, I think, hits a much better balance, where the Doctor still doesn't quite, like, respect Lucy as much as he should. But he ha- Lucy has these great ideas, like, uh, quite a few times in the story, where she mentions uh, how they would, like, get through, like, a time slip, or how to sort of undo the time loop and things like that and the doctor is like impressed by her and like he's inspired by what she comes up with and i think she does she holds her own against the tom docs as well so i think yeah i think this is the much better idea of how to equitably do this relationship while still having that spikiness to it oh no i i definitely agree with that i really like the way that lucy's characterized as as kind of smart here and the doctor is, you know, clearly responding to the fact that she has that degree of intelligence. It's a much more interesting relationship and it's much, much easier to invest in than the kind of we just don't seem to like each other very much of of, uh, of Phobos. And just the way 
that Paul McGann is able to play those scenes the way that he can just very lightly sort of like that. There's, there's one scene where Lucy suggests something and she immediately puts herself down and sort of says, oh, no, well, I don't suppose that makes any sense. And just the little way that McGann sort of, um, you know, volleys it back about, oh, no, that's brilliant. And it's just, he's got such a lovely way of being able to deliver that with that kind of, that boyish enthusiasm. But but it's so genuine and, and he just sort of radiates that kind of, um, that kind of love. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful way of of these characters working together but they can still you know they can you know the you know lucy's got those lines about uh, the doctor staring at her bum and stuff like that and it's, it, he's slightly mm-hmm. flustered by it and and it just it feels very natural but it feels like the way that um friends will tease each other rather than people who don't like each other sniping and that's makes all the difference in the world to their relationship absolutely i think yeah, this is that balance we've talked about in previous uh, coverage of the series. I think that's what makes it very strong. I think just like having them have a give and take, making sure Lucy contributes and making sure when they snipe at each other, there's still that sort of grounding of love beneath it that they're starting to sort of, you know what I mean? Not like, oh, in love, like the doctor and Charlie kept like sort of threatening into, but like of just, I think respect is again, even the better word, just like, they're really growing together as a doctor companion pair, even though they're sort of thrown together in not ideal circumstances. No, but there's a charm to the relationship, and I think that's that's what mm-hmm. makes it um, what makes it come alive. Um, they're they're just very charming together, and yeah, we know yeah. that there are going to be, you know. Um, difficulties and of course this story ends on a cliffhanger and it's a cliffhanger which direct, directly kind yeah. of involves um involves lucy and we haven't really talked about the headhunter yet because it's amounted to exactly one line of story or roughly so far but um yeah i suppose we should i don't really know what to say about the headhunter at this point except like yeah, okay we get a proper cliffhanger into the next story anything to add uh i think We'll have a lot more to add next story. Well, yeah, uh, just that's that, for sure. <laughs> that Kenner Olsen's performance, I think, is really good. I think she always turns up for that one line and really gives it her all. And then that's the end of that. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's interesting. It is very much like a very Series 8 kind of arc. Yes. Where it is very clearly teasing at something, not quite the sort of vague teasing that Rusty Davies would do. Not quite the big overarching stories that Moffat and the Matt Smith era would do, but instead just this very gentle hint that there is something bigger going on that is going to culminate in the finale. And I think that is a good light touch of how to do this. And so, yeah, I think it's fine. I think the teases are interesting enough. And I think Katarina Olsen's good casting and yeah, that's sort of colored by knowing the character better after more episodes with her. But uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to get to that finale for sure. Yeah, me too. And I, I, you know, for for all that, you know, she's she's only delivered uh, one line or a couple of lines a a story so far. Um, yeah, the fact that we haven't really talked about it isn't meant to be a reflection on her performance. It's just been that it's just it it's one line at the end of a story. It's it's not really amounted to anything. And this is the first time that it has amounted to something. And it's it's yeah, it's a solid cliffhanger. And and it. Mm-hmm. it even if I didn't know what was going to happen next, and I do know what's going to happen next, it, it, I remember like the first time I listened to this, thinking, "All right, yeah, I I really want to hear what's going to happen next." And I, you know, what more could you ask from a cliffhanger? All right, I think that about wraps up our coverage of No More Lies and Phobos, and we have a letter this week to discuss. So here is a letter from John, and he writes, "Dear Gigi and Kevin." I finally got to your Blood the Dogs review, and I mostly agree, but I want to point out one thing. JJ commented that any listeners would surely know quite about the history of the Daleks, but that's not actually true for the stories of this season. This was written knowing that it was going to be broadcast on BBC Radio 7, and this was a bigger jumping-on point than any story since Storm Warning, and probably bigger than that. There have been many more casual listeners, including a lot of people who never watched the classic show. That doesn't exclude the slipshot continuity, but it is something to bear in mind, Big finished sales fell off a cliff when the new series materialized, and this was part of their strategy to win back customers. Oh, and with another note, one thing that surprised John was the BBC allowing this an opening that was so reminiscent of the start of The Runway Bride, which was broadcast a week before Blood of the Daleks Episode 1. So, I guess my initial thought with that is, yeah, it's a jumping on point for sure. So yeah, 
I guess not everyone listening will be familiar with Genesis, the Daleks, etc. But still, everyone knows what a Dalek is. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not mystery bad guys from nowhere. I I think it's a valid point, and I I do take it on board. You yeah. are uh, you are right, John. That um this was designed, and, and I I should have picked picked that up when we were talking about it, and 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 mentioned it that this was a. Uh, not just going to be a big finish release, but it was also going to be uh, sort of broadcast on on national radio because national radio is still a thing in this country, even though it's hanging by a thread. Um, uh, and yeah, and it's one of those things that um, I, I I kind of was interested. I wasn't I wasn't living in the UK when when this was broadcast. I, I was living in the continent, um, but I do I am sort of at least a little bit aware that that people knew that new Doctor Who was being broadcast on the radio, um, even although the, the, the TV show was going on. So it's it's interesting that there's a little bit of a kind of bump there. It makes me wonder. Um, and I don't think that they should produce a, 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 a Paul McGann season of Doctor Who alongside um, Judy Whittaker or whoever comes next or, or whatever. And I, I know that at the, there was a time when that was very seriously being proposed by by certain people in fandom. I don't think that they should do that. But at the same time, I sort of also slightly think that maybe they should do that. That's just because I want to see more visual uh, Paul McGann because I just love Paul McGann on screen. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is an interesting point that, that, that this wasn't specifically, or I should say it wasn't exclusively designed uh, just for Big Finish. Yeah, I think that is important to bring up. I don't know. I feel like we've brought it up maybe once before, but yeah, it is. Just an interesting bit of trivia that, yeah, these were produced for the BBC Radio and broadcast on there. And they definitely helped Big Finish sort of recover because, yeah, they're doing better than ever now. So, yeah. Yeah, it's clearly, clearly a strategy that worked for them. Yeah, I, I really think this is a good point to bring up. All right. And if you want to email us, you can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. Uh, find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou and... Uh, before we get to the rest of the plugs, why don't we do our new segment, Recommendations? Yeah, I think that's definitely something uh, we should be getting into. So um, I have to say, on our last episode, uh, you recommended Vagrant Queen, and then I went away and watched it, mm-hmm. and it was great. And since then, we've discovered it's not getting a second season, and that's not great. Um, but for anyone that thinks that we're just um, sort of existing in our, our own little um, talking to you bubble, we're not. I hadn't heard of, Vig- uh, hadn't heard of uh, Vagrant Queen and Kev recommended it, and I watched it, and it was great. So thank you for your recommendation last week, Kev. What have you got for us this week? All right. Uh, here's another show that wrapped up about like a month after I'm finishing it. But it is uh, a much more well-known show. I'm going to recommend the Star Wars cartoon series, Star Wars The Clone Wars, which is currently all streamed on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I was vaguely interested in it when it first came out way back in the year of, I want to say 2008 or nine. And and back when George Lucas still owned Star Wars, this is something that was created by him and then shepherded and showrun by this man, Dave Filoni, who you might recognize uh, having a bit of a moment recently, both with the show he worked on Avatar The Last Airbender uh, coming up on Netflix and getting a sort of revival, but also on The Mandalorian. He is still in the Star Wars game and doing a lot of big things for Disney. But this is where he sort of cut his teeth on Star Wars. He and it really shows how, like, the first couple seasons they're mostly standalone stories. Uh, the show whole shows restriction sort of three to four episode sort of arcs, and in those first seasons, this arcs very standalone. Uh, the good guys, Anakin and Obi Wan. I hope I don't have to explain who Star Wars characters are to the listeners. <laughs> Anakin and Obi Wan. And then a new character, Ahsoka, who's designed as this young Jedi tagging along with them. They find a evil Sith. They take him down, hang out with some clones, do some... There's some great military type of action. It just... It has had a very standalone Adventure of the Week story. In season three, there's definitely a lot more boldness from, I guess, assurances from the network, which would have been Cartoon Network at this time, and just from confidence of the staff to go darker, to go more continuity heavy. Characters like Ahsoka and other characters unique to this show are getting much more in-depth arcs and character development. And a lot more creative story choices are made. And that run of seasons three through six are very creative and interesting and fun. And then Disney bought Lucasfilm. They sort of shuttered the project so they could do their own cartoon. And recently this year brought it back 
as sort of a selling point for Disney Plus to sort of finish that story because the sudden sort of cancellation meant it didn't really end before the titular Clone Wars ended with Star Wars Episode Three, the movie. So this really, this final season is truly fantastic. The animation is gorgeous and the stories are really gripping and we had right up into that sort of tragic end of that prequel trilogy. And I, I know the idea of engaging with Star Wars prequels content, especially Star Wars spinoff stuff is sort of wary because of the sort of fluctuating continuity of Star not continuity, the fluctuating quality of Star Wars stuff in the ether right now. But I, I can say this, the show is fantastic. Uh, if you want to get a sort of firm drumming up point, this is when it's great to great. It's season three, but I don't uh, disregard the first two seasons. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And yeah, it's just, it was just such a blast to watch. It really, after episode nine specifically, it really restored my faith watching good Star Wars content. And I'm excited to check out the other ones. I believe they're called Rebels and Resistance that the same crew has done afterwards for Disney, as well as uh, more Mandalorian coming out later this year. So yeah, the TV side of Star Wars is in very good hands. And it's, it was really good to sort of rediscover that show. Well, thank you for the recommendation. I have to say that this is just an, another sort of genuine coincidence, but um, I've been kind of considering uh, starting watching it. I, I kind of petered out a little bit of my Star Wars fandom. Um, mm-hmm. Just I, I'm not quite as down on the uh, sequel trilogy, as it were, um, as mm-hmm. some people. I, I think it's a fairly hit and miss, but I don't think there's any part of Star Wars that hasn't been hit and miss. Um, but I absolutely adored The Mandalorian. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and so I was kind of looking for more Star Wars content, and Clone Wars was, was kind of on my radar. So my question is, is it, should should I just sort of jump in at the beginning? Or or is it is it worth maybe, is there maybe a better sort of jumping on point later on in the series? I would say if you want, if you're already sort of sold on the idea of fun Star Wars adventures, jump into the beginning. Like there's still, like even the worst ones are still, oh, this is a fun, entertaining way to spend a half hour just watching a cool Star Wars adventure. If you want to be sold on it, here, I'll even give you a specific episode to pull the episode list. Uh, Mid-season three, uh, there is an arc called... There's an arc involving Asajj Ventress, who is this uh, sort of Sith character invented for the 2D Clone Wars cartoon, which was the Gennady Tartakovsky cartoon, which isn't really related to this continuity-wise, but also really worth checking out. Uh, this is what we're talking about is the 3D one, the one that's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and I'll find the episode right now. Yes, called Night... It's episode, season 3, episode 12, Night Sisters, uh, followed by Monsters and Witches of the Mist. That's a sort of three-episode arc that really gets into her backstory. It's very light on sort of the Anakin and Obi-Wan like, and other movie characters besides Dooku. But it really is like a very dark, complex story. It sets up a lot of things that play out in future seasons. And it is just very cool, of uh, fun action. And then right after that is a three-episode arc, Overlords, Alter Mortis, and Ghosts of Mortis, which is very... You could feel Lucas's sort of involvement with this. Uh, worth noting, except for that final Disney season, Lucas was involved with those first six seasons of Clone Wars, usually just contributing story ideas and uh, notes on how to improve it, not as hands-on, given he was very much in his sort of half-retirement phase. But you can still definitely feel his imprint, especially in arcs like this uh, Mortis arc, season three episodes 15 to 17, which is very strange and surreal and very, like... Luke on Dagobah-y, and it's, it's just a blast to... I mean, since we're both fans of It Takes You Away, Ghost Light, that sort of... That's what I'm comparing it to for the Doctor Who connection, those episodes. Those are just really radical and silly and fun. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Well, I'll, I'll, again, I'm going to take your recommendation on board, and uh, I'll, definitely, uh, I'll definitely give it a go. Um, I think from there, I'm going to do uh, my recommendation. And my recommendation is completely self-serving. Um, so um, I have, uh, I have uh, self-published a book um, on Amazon. Uh, and it's called Memoir. A Memoir. The Life and Somewhat Rambling Times of Jack S.T. Derbyshire. So it's basically a very light-hearted, um, slightly comedic uh, 
fictional memoir, if you like, um, about a character, Jack Derbyshire, um, and, and kind of his ramble through life. Um, it's, it's very silly. It's very lighthearted. Um, but what I cannot do is in any way claim it has a connection to, to Doctor Who or anything that we're doing, other than the fact that, that we do this podcast and I wrote this book. Um, so yeah, it's, as I say, it's called a uh, memoir, a memoir, uh, and you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's available in, uh, both Kindle and paperback forms. So yeah, if you're one of those people who insists on reading books as books, um, as I often am, uh, then you can get a physical thing as, as well as an electronic one. It's available in the U S it's available in the UK, Europe, uh, and the Far East. So anywhere, anywhere you can um, get Amazon, uh, you will be able to pick up a copy. And of course I highly recommend that you do because I wrote it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Like, I was just learning that you wrote that today, and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I will definitely check it out. Of course, I'm really excited to see what it is. Fantastic. It's not. Um, I I should say it. The, the conception of it was sort of like if you've missed a plane and you need something to read for a couple of hours in an airport, like this is the book that you want to go for. If if you're looking for heavyweight themes and, and deep character analysis, then then it's probably not the thing for you. But if you want a light chuckle uh, and and some easy reading in in what are difficult times at the moment, uh, then then maybe this is the book for you. Fantastic. Yeah, I think. That is a great transition into sort of the more general plugs that we always do. And yeah, like I said, email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com with any thoughts on the episodes we've discussed or any recommendations we've discussed or anything else you want to email us about. Find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. You can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you're using to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I think we can leave it there for this week. Next episode, we will be concluding the first It's Doctor and Lucy Miller season. So that means we are going to be covering both parts of Human Resources. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.